Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Hey everyone, Randall here with one for the theater nerds. So OG listeners of the Losers Club will remember us briefly discussing a stage musical of Stephen King's Carrie that opened and very quickly closed on Broadway in 1988. After that production, which was critically reviled and deemed an epic flop, the show more or less disappeared, existing only via bootleg recordings that only the most devoted weirdos were able to scrounge up. A cult uh, sprouted up around the musical, and the show was revived off-Broadway in 2012 with new songs and a new approach. And it's since had several uh, memorable productions in the U.S. and abroad. That's the simple story, but it goes much deeper. Joining me today is Chris Adams, author of Out for Blood, A Cultural History of Carrie the Musical, which is out July 27th via Bloomsbury Publishing. Per its synopsis, Out for Blood patches together memories, archive material, and contemporary reports to dive into the origins and development of this infamous show and examines how a promising entertainment product can swiftly gain a notorious reputation, what makes or breaks a Broadway show, and how even the most unlikely of musicals can find its place in the hearts of fans around the world. I can attest that it is a fantastic read. Whether or not you are a fan of Stephen King or musicals, it's just a really interesting, good story told by all the people who were involved. Uh, The book was spun off from a 10-part podcast, also called Out for Blood, which is what got Chris started on this journey through Every blood cake nook and cranny of Carrie the Musical. So you can check that out. Any podcast platform out for blood. One quick note. Forgive my audio if it's a little wonky. Had some mic issues. It happens in podcasting, but it is still a fantastic interview. And I hope you enjoy it as a recovering theater kid. Lord knows I did. Chris Adams, author of Out for Blood, A Cultural History of Carrie the Musical, out July 27th via Bloomsbury Publishing. 
Chris, introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us, is Carrie your favorite Stephen King book? Ha, hello, I thank you for having me. Um, I, I feel very uh, privileged to be here. I have a bit of um, imposter syndrome because you guys have such amazing guests. Oh. And here I am. Um, so yeah, um, my, <laughs> thank you for having me. My name's Chris. I, I'm one of the co-hosts of uh, another podcast called Out for Blood. And now I've written a book also called Out for Blood about the history and the, the curious chaos of Harry the Musical, which is a particularly niche corner of the Stephen King universe, but I think one which has its own very special fandom and a very interesting place in the history of theatre. Um, I, I think Carrie is my favourite Stephen King novel, probably because I've I've read it about 10 times in the preparation yeah. of this podcast and this book. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's just one of the, you know, one of the greats and one of the best, I think, film adaptations. And obviously then there's also the musical, which, you know, Love it or hate it. I'm really, I'm really (laughs) to hear your thoughts on the musical after all this time, but we'll get there in a minute. I am curious though, you know, and I was excited about this because I always feel like we did our Carrie episode, his first episode we ever recorded of this podcast back in 2017. And that was back when we sort of crammed everything into a single episode. So we talk about the musical in it, but only briefly. And so when when you uh, messaged us and I I heard about this book, I was like, this is perfect because I've always wanted to explore the musical a little bit more. uh, via this podcast, we did talk about the Riverdale episode that was uh, yeah. inspired by the musical. But but yeah, this will be, I think, a really fun way for our listeners to get a sense of of this very interesting and odd and and oddly beloved project. But I guess first, um, before we get into all of that, I'd love to know just a little bit more about your relationship to Stephen King in general, this being a Stephen King podcast. Are you, uh, like, you know, you said you love Carrie, but are you a fan of his larger uh, oeuvre? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when I was a teenager, I was kind of a theater kid, but like uh, many theater kids also interested in kind of slightly weird stuff. So uh, I became a Stephen King reader then. Um, I'd say I'm probably somewhere in the medium scale of, you know, I haven't read every single thing he's ever put out, but I certainly read quite a lot of it, a lot of the older stuff in particular. Um, You know, I I had a phase where I was reading Carrie and Christine and Cujo and all of those greats, Uh, you know, every, every Stephen King book I could get hold of. And then, so when I discovered, you know, there was this musical that kind of crossed over both worlds it became a bit of an obsession so yeah um big Stephen King fan and um I, I listen to your show ardently so it's it's <laughs> fantastic to to be here and to to get your thoughts on this very weird project yeah <laughs> yeah I'm curious you mentioned in the book uh that you first saw Carrie the Musical I believe in 2006 uh you said you watched it on a tape like so what is like your origin story with this musical yeah, I mean, we met, as I say, many years ago, kind of um, as I was ex- in my in my quiet corner of England, uh, where there wasn't much access to things like Broadway shows, um, discovered that this musical existed because there is a there's quite a well-known book called Not Since Carrie written by here it is written by a, a Broadway writer called Ken Mandelbaum. Uh, and this came out just after the show had closed. This was released, I think, in 1991. And there's this sort of famous photo of Lindsay Haightley who played Carrie in the show on the front, laughing, covered in blood. Uh, It's kind of an outtake from a promotional shoot they had. Um, So that kind of intrigued me even more because uh, Ken kind of uses Carrie as the benchmark of of terrible flop musicals, basically. And and his his point, as the title suggests, is that no other show could ever be as big a flop as Carrie was. 
Um, so that, you know, intrigued the kind of flop hunter in me as well. And and many, I think as a late teen, I managed to get hold of a, a VHS bootleg. Remember those? Yeah. Uh, of, of the musical, because the musical just was so short lived. There were no kind of official recordings or films made of it. There were lots of audience recordings made of it, though. On I imagine those very clunky 80s camcorders. Um, so I managed to get hold of a video of one of those. So I did watch it a lot earlier than that, but then I rewatched it. Uh, as 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 you said in I think 2006 when I met my good friend Holly Morgan who who I co-hosted the podcast with and kind of became obsessed anew with with this crazy musical um, and then kind of that bubbled away over the years and we we'd laugh about it and talk about how mad that this thing existed um, and then as COVID kind of came around we both kind of worked in the theatre world we suddenly found ourselves with lots of spare time on our hands because uh, obviously theatres were were just closed everywhere. Um, and we thought Holly had another podcast uh, with her husband, Tom, about a different subject. And we kind of thought, what other podcasts could we make in all of this spare time that we suddenly have? And we thought, wouldn't it be cool to kind of look into Carrie and to, you know, all of these urban legends and myths and crazy stories about the show had, had sort of bubbled away over the last, um, well, 35 years, I guess, since the show opened and closed. Um, and that sort of was this top line story, the kind of Wikipedia version we called it, which kind of gives you the bullet points. But there were so many kind of things that we heard and we we're like, surely none of this is true, it's chaos. So we thought, wouldn't it be cool to track down the people involved in the show, people who are on stage, people who wrote it and, and kind of delve into this mysterious musical. And the amazing thing was because all of these people were also actors or you know part of the theater industry, they were also sitting at home with nothing right. to do yeah. during the lockdown and, and just passionately wanting to talk about this industry that they loved. And so we were amazed that all of a sudden we had this huge list of people who were up for just talking to us for hours and hours about yeah. Harry the Musical. And so, you know, what started out as we thought we were maybe going to do a three or four episode podcast. We ended up with um, 10 episodes and even more bonus episodes now um, about this very niche <laughs> subject um yeah and then that kind of developed as we went along uh we were introduced to more and more people and you know we just couldn't fit everyone in so I was lucky enough to be able to, to write this book with all of the extra people that we we weren't able to speak to the first time around so it's kind of become a big part of my life particularly over the last three years it's been carry night and day to be honest <laughs> uh which is quite strange for such a, a weird little show that closed after a week in 1988 <laughs> yeah well speaking of I'd love it for our listeners who are kind of unfamiliar with the Carrie musical, if you could, yeah. and obviously your book, you know, details this uh, very compellingly, but for, I love like a broad level view of the general arc of the Carrie musical. Like when did it premiere? Yeah, what did yeah. its production history look like in the years following? Like, is it still produced today? And sure. uh, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, of course. And obviously I can talk for hours on this as the podcast proves. So please tell me if I'm going into too much detail <laughs> So basically, um, Carrie, as you know, Stephen King's first novel, um, the hardback of the novel did very well. But then when the paperback was released, uh, things kind of went crazy and it really sort of cemented his, his reputation. Skip back slightly. And um, a, a lovely guy called Lawrence D. Cohen uh, was, was, had just graduated from college. He was writing film reviews, but not earning much money from it. And he eventually gets a job as a script reader for, for various different movie producers. Um, and in 73, the year before Carrie is released as a novel, he comes to his desk and he finds the manuscript of the novel um, and sort of falls in love with it. And he tries and fails to get many producers to adapt it as a movie. Eventually, he has a meeting with the producer, Paul Monash, who had just signed a deal with 20th Century Fox. 
Um, and he was kind of going through with Cohen all of these different projects that he was thinking about making into a movie. And the last one he mentioned, just as as Cohen was about to leave, was Carrie. Um, and obviously he accepted the job in a beat, loving the manuscript. And uh, as many films uh, kind of do, and as I'm sure you know, it took a long time to get off the ground. People didn't quite get it. Um, he was trying and failing with different studios to get it off the ground. And eventually, um, Monash gave Cohen the opportunity to adapt the uh, King's manuscript as a screenplay himself, um, which was an amazing opportunity. So he did that. And even then, it was kind of an uphill battle um, to get anyone to take it seriously. Um, and nobody seemed to really get what this film was until the test screenings when people kind of went wild for it. Um, and Cohen has a, a long kind of history with, with Stephen King. After this, he goes on later, as you know, to adapt It and the Tommyknockers as, as yeah. miniseries. So he's kind of the link to King here. Um, and then skip forward a bit to the early 80s, Cohen and his partner, Michael Gore, who's a composer. He's the guy who wrote a lot of the songs in Fame. He just won lots of awards for Fame in the late 70s, early 80s. They go and see an opera at the Met Opera in New York, an opera called Lulu by Alban Berg, which is a particularly violent, bloody opera. And just leaving the Met, they kind of say, if Alban Berg was alive today, I bet he would make an opera out of Carrie. That's exactly the kind of thing he'd, he'd do. And they kind of have one of those moments where they're like, Hang on a second. That would be quite cool. Maybe yeah. we should do it. Um, and this is the time of, you know, yes, Broadway is changing at this time. Cats is this huge production that has arrived from the UK and becomes this kind of phenomenon, um, a really kind of purely commercial musical that is suddenly making a lot of people a lot of money. Um, Broadway has been kind of plagued by lots of fairly stale revivals, lots of plays, uh, lots of things that kind of aren't particularly challenging, let's say. So a lot of other composers had started to look for ways to kind of um, create the next big thing. Yeah. Um, they contact Dean Pitchford, who was Michael Gore's writing partner on Fame. Um, he's the lyricist to carry the musical. And the three of them together, they work on opposite sides of the countries. This is before Zoom and email and everything, obviously. And it's this years-long project to kind of put together this, this musical. Tell me if I'm going into too much detail here because we haven't no, even no, got no, to the stage good. yet. <laughs> so, you know, um, they put together a workshop of the first half of the musical. It's kind of well received, but no one's really putting up the money to get this onto stage. It's, you know, there's a lot of hesitation about the subject matter, as you can imagine. Horror, Stephen King, just not taken seriously by Broadway people or, right. or seen as a viable Broadway project. Broadway audiences at the time, very well to do. Um, there were no shows for and about teenagers and young people in particular. This is quite a different kind of proposition, I guess. Plus, this story has periods and massacres and death. And, you know, it's not the kind of thing that the 80s Broadway audience want to see. Right. Meanwhile, back over here in the UK, um, a guy called Terry Hams is running the Royal Shakespeare Company. And this is where things start to get a little bit weird. Yeah, um, I thought this was so fascinating. <laughs> I had no idea it started at Stratford. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So a very British company. Um, but... Hans has seen his um, co-artistic director, Trevor Nunn, direct Cats and have huge success with Cats. And Terry kind of starts to think, maybe I could take a break from the RSC. Maybe I could come up with my own uh, kind of money-generating mega musical. Um, <laughs> but um, it doesn't quite work out quite that way. He agrees that the RSC itself would get on board and co-produce the show with a commercial producer, which is a, a model that they, they also use for Les Miserables. Basically, the company's kind of um, excuse from any financial risk, but it kind of has to put a lot of its own resources into putting the show together. So this very strange model comes about where the Royal Shakespeare Company here in the UK 
whose remit is to produce Shakespeare and classical texts, is suddenly producing this musical based on a Stephen King horror novel. And the British press goes mad. You know, this is a very kind of right-leaning time in our in our history, particularly in theatre. This is a publicly funded company. And people People just lose their minds about this. You know, it, it was it was you know like suggesting that we would musicalize the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something. It was right. just seen as something that shouldn't be happening, particularly by the RSC. And as the production goes on, it's plagued by all sorts of other dramas, disagreements, sackings, people leave. One of the leading ladies almost gets decapitated by a piece of set. There's all of this kind of crazy <laughs> stuff that right happens. There, yeah. Exactly, and um. The, the production gets a reputation. Terry Hans is, is quite a kind of um, avant-garde director. He's very well regarded for his Shakespeare productions at the time, but has no experience in directing musicals and very little knowledge of kind of American teenage life. You know, yeah. we, until recently, we didn't have such things as proms or this kind of, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So here's this kind of um, Welsh director trying to figure out this story with which which is in basically a different language to him and trying to musicalize it with this American creative team who are trying to explain to him what's going on and basically they come up with this show which has choreography by Debbie Allen who choreographed fame she's a big Broadway star by that point which doesn't really fit this vision of the show that Terry Hans has created so he's created these very minimal futuristic kind right. of um, space age almost sets with this very high school style choreography in it. And when it opens to the press, they rip it to shreds. It becomes, as we've talked about, known as the biggest flop ever. Um, but still they press on and they move along to Broadway. They recast Barbara Cook, who's the lady whose head was almost chopped off. They recast her with Betty Buckley, who interestingly right. had been in Harry Moving, which is a really interesting connection. And she'd also been um, in the Cats original cast on Broadway. And again, on Broadway, it lasted even last time. It was just, it shuttered after, I think it did 21, uh, sorry, 15 previews and five regular performances. So literally like two and a half weeks, it was open yeah. and closed again. And the the American press just ripped it to shreds even more than the British press had. Uh, and it just became, as I say, this kind of landmark for flop musicals. And ever since, it's been known as this kind of epic flop. But then an interesting kind of twist in the tale happens in that through the 90s, as the internet emerges and becomes kind of mainstream, fans of the show start to get together and, and watch these bootleg videos and yeah. listen to these audio recordings of the show and kind of reassess it a little bit and kind of become a bit obsessed with it, as many of us did. And the producers get all of these requests to, to kind of try again. And they're like, nope, we don't want anything to do with this. This was a hot mess. This is kind of the, the tarnish on our careers. It takes over 20 years before they're persuaded to have a go at rewriting the show. By 2009, they they start rewriting it. And then um, beyond everyone's wildest imaginings, by 2012, a new production opens in New York off-Broadway where- And that was probably, at MCC, right? Yeah, at MCC yeah, Theatre, yeah. yeah. And about half of the songs have been dropped. They've rewritten it. They've kind of modernized it. And um, it's in a much smaller space. There's less of the kind of craziness that, that was introduced in the original production. It's a much more kind of straightforward, realistic, of the story, I suppose. And one of the amazing things that came out of this, and I think probably something that the writers were really pleased with, A, was that there was a version of Carrie the Musical that they were pleased with that was finally out in the world. They weren't kind of so ashamed of it in a way, sure. but also it meant that they could license it to other, to other directors, to colleges and community groups. And so now if you Google Carrie the Musical, 
you see it's produced everywhere. There yeah. are thousands of productions of it all over the world, which is kind of like the happy ending to Carrie's story. Um, so yeah, that sorry, that was like the long short no, version of the yeah, history that, of Carrie. <laughs> I do think that is like, yeah, that was a good, I think, summation because there are so many moving parts. So in between yeah. close that first time and then the MCC production in 2012, were there any like like so there were no official like regional productions or anything. It was dormant, like totally. Exactly. So there were like two or three attempts by people to illegally produce this musical, gotcha. um, which is quite funny. Um, literally like a, a summer camp for teenagers in the States did the first ever production after Broadway. And they just oh, got wow. their friends to kind of, uh, you know, notate it from the, te- the cassette tape and try and recreate it. And it was played by a load of teens. And a couple of the writers went to see it and they were like, this is actually closer to what we imagined. You know, these are real young people playing these parts, real teenagers. Um, and a couple, you know, there was an attempt to do it with drag queens at one stage. The, all of these kind of um, weird, quirky variations of the show came up, but they were always kind of shut down in the end. Well, I saw you, was, yeah, I saw you write yeah. about, uh, you interviewed David Serta uh, from, yeah, yeah I, I live in Chicago and he's- Oh, a, okay, yeah, yeah of like Helena, He does Helena Handbag, I believe. Yes. And yeah. uh, I've seen a bunch of their shows over the years. And so I wish I, uh, their carry predates me, but uh, yeah, and, yeah. But I, when I read about that, <laughs> I got really excited. And that was like a drag production of Carrie. Yeah. They created a new, yeah, that was their own original. original. Yeah. yeah okay. Exactly. It was called Scary the Musical. And, you know, they kind of, um, they did their own musical of Carrie, basically, a kind of, I think, a legal version, basically, sure. but, uh, <laughs> where, the, where the leads were played by drag queens. And I think eventually, as the, I think they did it a few times, and the most recent time was a little bit too close to the new version of the official musical coming oh, out. And I think it kind of got ceased and desisted. So, yeah, yeah but there were all of those kind of strange little versions of it popped up over the years. So what was the response like critically to the 2012 sort of revival? Was it as, was it scathing or was it actually like a lot more, oh, maybe we, you know, were too hard on it the first time? Like what was mm. the vibe? I'd say there was a lot of anticipation for the rewrite. A lot of people were like, this is the worst musical that's ever happened. What's it going to be like now? And um, there was a kind of slight sense of mocking that, you know, we should all be very serious. You know, we should all treat this a bit more respectfully this time around. And the reviews were much more balanced. You know, there was nothing to kind of make fun of this time, really. And um, the original production had quite crazy costumes, weird set. There was none of that this time. It was all very, very realistic. I think the reviews you probably describe as balanced. There were a few very strong reviews. Uh, strongly positive reviews, a few negative reviews. The general consensus was that the new production was a bit too safe. It felt a little bit like a kind of after-school special about bullying, the dangers of bullying, or, you know, how we should all treat each other more respectfully. Yeah. Certain kind of... A lot of the dark humor that, you know, we we know is injected into Stephen King's stories was gone because, I think, they didn't want people to laugh at it again. They They were kind of very much on the edge of their seats and wanted people to treat it with a bit more seriousness and treat the characters as if they were real people rather than those slightly kind of caricatures that you get in in King's Tales, right? So there was a slight sense of them playing it safely. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. 
Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Yeah, that's really, I, I, uh, my wife actually, similar to you, was like, had seen, she's a big musical theater head and she had got her hands mm. on like sort of bootleg recordings and, and even the, some of the old sheet music, she like torrented the sheet music yeah, like, right. you know, years <laughs> ago. Uh, and, and, uh, but when I told her about this interview and about this book, we she kind of started looking at the reviews of the 2012 one. And the one she found was was definitely, uh, and she was reading me some sections from it. It was definitely in line with what you're saying about it being too safe. And I found that really interesting because it the thing about King that I think is uh, is so cool and dangerous is the fact that he understands how like, and I know this, this is a broad thing, but this is part of yeah. what I love about King is like the idea that like teenagers and young people and bullies, they can be evil. They're not like, yes. like they don't yeah. all have like secret hearts of gold. Like I, I talk about bullies a lot on the pod because I, I feel like nobody writes bullies quite like King. Like you think about exactly. Henry Bowers or Chris Hardison, obviously, and Carrie, who is despicable. And then, uh, you know, you've got, but you got Henry Bowers, you've got like Buddy Repperton, you've got uh, Junior from yeah. the Dome. Like these are like these young teenage uh, yeah. monsters and who yeah. are not redeemable and are homicidal. And yeah. I think that, I think that uh, with King, you have to put some, I think once you try to um, uh, add too much heart where he hasn't ventured obviously there's a lot of heart in king mm. but i do think you lose something when you try to do the whole kind of um uh soften the bullying aspects of the whole yeah, thing yeah. because i think part of what the appeal of carrie is is the cruelty of it and the yes, idea that yeah. she truly does feel alone and like an outsider and i think i read in this new carrie there was more of an effort to show that they were like all like all teenagers feel like outsiders yeah. right but that yeah. that kind of softens the the blow because in the end carrie really does need to feel despite the fact that like um you know uh what's the name of the the blonde guy who takes her uh william Katz character from the movie tommy tommy, tommy like he takes her to the dance and he actually seems like a really genuine sweet guy but in the end it's yeah. like they're still they still exist at different poles. You know what I mean? Like they, like the yeah. twain shall meet really. And I think that yeah, exactly. is, is what's so, so that's to me was an interesting approach to the musical that I'm not, yeah, that I think was a worthy effort, but to me, it still doesn't quite serve the material. And, um, and so I guess I'm curious from your perspective uh, as somebody who has really probably, you know, you've, you've seen or at least heard everything from the original you've you have you actually like seen a stage production of it of this new version yeah so i saw the 2012 version in new york and nice. lots of different productions since then <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you've probably seen so many like what is the version like uh do you prefer the 70 or the you know the 80s version or do you prefer the uh newer one Oh, wow. That's like Sophie's choice. Um, it's <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> there are things to love about both of them. I think 
you know, the the 88 production is the one that made me uh, obsessed with this product, right? It's it's wild, it's over the top, it's overblown, but it's also really clever. And there are some really genuinely beautiful moments in it. You know, some of it's it's certainly not a write-off. Some of the songs in there are extraordinary songs, beautiful yeah. songs. Um, and some of the performances, you know, Betty Buckley on that stage is is a, is a storm of a performance. It's it's wild. One of the greatest Broadway performances in history, a lot of people would argue, yeah. as Margaret White. Um, but, you know, the new production, it, I guess, has given the show a wider life. It's given it a longer life. Um, it's, it's made it into, I guess... Uh, a product, a, a show that other people can put their stamp on. The original production was very kind of unique, but short lived. Whereas now, any director, any producer can take Parry and they can make their own thing of it to a certain extent. You can't, you know, you can't change what's in the story or the songs, but you can, you can set it. You know, you you, you can design it and, and set it how you like and and portray those powers how you like and and those characters how you like. So I think it's given Carrie the musical a new life, that new production. But my heart, I think, is always with that 80s production. Uh, you know, it, it's it's almost like the story of Carrie herself. You know, it was kind of picked on by the critics. Sure. It was, you know, it never had this this chance to to be its its swan at the prom moment, I guess. Um, so I think, you know, there's a certain sort of um there's a certain sort of sadness around that original production that I think appeals to people who like Stephen King's work. Actually, it's it's kind of weird. Yeah. It kind of like you know it was it was the little show that tried to be big and it never quite happened for it. Um, so I think you know from that slightly weird perspective, I think I'll always love the '80s production. <laughs> Are there any songs that were in that that got dropped that you think it's a you know a shame that they got dropped? Yeah, a few. Um, I mean, there's a, the song that the book is named after, Out for Blood, never made it through to, to 2012. So um, that that song is wild. It's it's it, the top of Act 2 song where they're killing the pig that they use the blood yeah. for to drop on Carrie. And it's crazy. There's like raps and and they, they have this animatronic pig thing and there's people leaping all over. It's madness. It's like hot 80s madness. But um, I, I really miss that song. There's a be- there are beautiful songs that Sue sings in the original production that don't make it through. Um, yeah, there are lots of things that I, you know, I think could have been tweaked or, or moved to the new production with a little bit of effort. But again, they've tried to make the new production um, a little bit more realistic, a little bit more contemporary. Um, there is a great new song in the in the new show called "The World According to Chris," <laughs> which is sung from Chris's perspective, and it's kind of about you know what it's like to be the the rich, powerful girl in school and basically be able to do what you like um that's a really fun moment from the, yeah. the new production um so yeah both have their own kind of you know great sure. memorable moments that they're, they're kind of like two different shows now it, it feels like you know it's been it was remade so much that it doesn't really feel like the original anymore but there are those kind of strands of dna that link it back <laughs> right no that's super fun uh you mentioned earlier like urban legends and then I, you're describing sort of the you know, the 80s production, there was this, uh, like, it was less realistic. They weren't aiming for realism necessarily. And yeah. a lot of that has to do with uh, uh, the director who was, you know, this uh, Shakespeare director who was, yeah, yeah. and you have this hilarious anecdote uh, in the book, uh, one of the urban legends that emerged was somebody <laughs> told him to think about Greece, speaking yeah, about the musical, yeah. but then he interpreted it to be ancient Greece and thought about, yeah. you know, Greek drama and started wanted to incorporate that. And so there was like rumors <laughs> about togas and stuff like yeah. that. But you sort of puncture a hole in that a little bit. <laughs> Tell me a little bit like about <laughs> that urban legend. And then are there any others that 
because I, I guess I'm interested in how, um, and we can talk about this more in a moment because I'm kind of jumping yeah. ahead here, but like you call this, like some people say it's like the worst musical ever. And I think that there is this myth around the Carrie musical that almost has eclipsed the reality of it. And that's yeah, yeah. urban legend. So I want to talk about that a little bit, but let's start with the Greece, <laughs> Greece sort of thing. And then Greece. from there, yeah. Yeah, so make it like Greece. Like you say, this be, this became, I guess, the most commonly, everyone we spoke to was like, have you heard about the Greece thing? And we're like, yeah, we've heard the story. <laughs> and there were different versions of it. And the, the, the as you say, the kind of top line version is that the producers of the show who are Broadway producers, came to Terry Hans, who's this British classical director, and said, oh, you should make it more like Greece. And he was like, oh, yeah, I, I know Greece. I can direct the classics. You know, I know all about ancient Greek theatre. And so off he went. And the, the story goes that the next thing that happens is everyone sees these costumes and their togas and, you know, they're kind of inspired by ancient Greece. And the set is this kind of temple with steps and columns and everything like that. And there's some truth in it. It's not as simple as that because, you know, the process of making theater is not quite as simple as everybody turning up to the dress rehearsal and there are your costumes yeah, and no one's seen them before. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there are certain, you know, there is certainly no, you know, you can't argue that there are Greek references in the show. Um, and Terry Hans very much a was very open about this from the start. He agreed to direct it on the condition he could use his knowledge of classical theater and all of its kind of tropes and imagery. Uh, and that's the reason why he wanted to do the show. He saw in the modern story of Carrie a kind of ancient myth, um, a mixture of Greek tales, biblical tales, fairy stories. You know, Cinderella is basically Carrie, right? You know, yeah. she has a dream of going to the ball snatched away. And it's kind of um, and when you look at that production, there are those things there. The costumes aren't quite togas, but they do have a look about them of, of togas. And the set does have this epic staircase thing in the finale, uh, which looks like a Greek temple where they would sort of sacrifice people for the gods. And he treats the kind of teenagers in the, in the story like a Greek chorus, which is yeah. a, a trope in Greek theatre who kind of tell the story, like, almost like a narrator. Um, so he kind of uses these archetypes and, and, and visuals from Greek theater to tell the story of Carrie. It's fascinating. And there are people who have analyzed this to, you know, every single line and every note of every song to find these kind of links to classical theater. And it's, it's really interesting. But I think the point that I make in the book is it's great if you're a director to have that kind of approach and that kind of vision. But if nobody gets it, has it really worked? You know what I mean? You know, people were kind of watching it, going to the theatre, expecting to see this kind of, um, you know, horror story on stage. And instead, they were getting this quite kind of intellectual piece of Greek-inspired theatre. It's not really what they expected, to the extent that, you know, the, there was um, the, the blood dump, the bucket of blood was never really a pivotal moment in the story, because partly because of the technology was stopping people stopping the designers from doing it because the right. blood was gunking up the 80s mics that they were using. But Harry Hams was also like, I, you know, I want this to be a visual image, not a kind of bloody shock moment. I want people to kind of feel her pain. And that doesn't necessarily mean there should be blood splattered all over the set and coming into the audience and, and you know, drowning the stage as you might expect it. I want, you know, people to relate to her moment of shock and horror in that second through her acting and through the acting of the rest of the cast. That was the kind of director he was. He wasn't there to kind of do a kind of, you know, everyone put on a plastic poncho and get splattered with blood in the front row. It wasn't that kind of show. And even the revival, the 2012 revival, there was not a drop of liquid blood on that stage. It was all done with projections and lighting, right. which was another thing they were kind of um, 
you know, the press kind of came at that production by saying, we wanted to see the blood. We want to see her get covered in blood. That's what we want to go see Carrie for. But it wasn't there. And um, yeah, so yeah, that was the kind of main urban legend, Greece versus Greece, I guess. The other, I mean, there are so many, the, the thing about the decapitation has various different versions oh, of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And the first, the kind of press night performance here in the UK in Stratford, uh, where the RSC was doing the show to start with, the set for Margaret White's kind of living room kind of was automated and came under this spinning piece of scenery. And everyone in the audience was said to have gone <gasps> and gasped as <laughs> it came within like two inches of the top of her head. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the kind of story goes that that was the breaking point for, for poor Barbara Cook, who was this Broadway legend, had been on, you know, some of the greatest Broadway hits of the, you know, all through her career. She was like, no, I'm not doing it anymore. This is too dangerous. That was partly the reason why she left, but there was a stack of other reasons too, why she was just kind of not happy about the show. And, and yeah. she left at the end of the UK run and was replaced by uh, by Betty Buckley on Broadway. But I mean, there are tons of other crazy stories about the show. You know, you have to just look at the photos and there are people dressed in like leotards and S&M leather and all sorts of mad stuff. Wow. It's, yeah, it's it's a real doozy. It's, it's a really interesting thing to dig into, which we did in great detail. <laughs> Yeah, which is great. I mean, that's what's so fun about uh, this book specifically is you really can kind of like, <laughs> oh, I don't you. know, yeah, like luxuriate in a lot of the weirdness yeah. uh, that exists there because it just seems like it was a perfect storm in a lot of ways of a lot of different things going wrong and a lot of like, yeah, meaning perspectives that perhaps didn't quite suit the material. Like when you talk about this girl, like, like uh, Terry Hand seemed like he was so into the idea of this being a tragedy. And yeah, yeah. And then, and I love that because, well, I love that to a point because I think another thing King gets is the sort of operatic and uh, high stakes nature of youth. Like when you are young, mm. everything is a tragedy because you, you know, you're bright and young and innocent. Yeah, yeah. Everything does feel like an apocalypse. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And so I love the approach to that. But then at the same time, I feel like you're missing that dark humor, like that you mentioned earlier, and you're missing the fun and you're missing the the um like yeah the blood the blood splatter like the the ec comics like side of king and i feel like yeah. you need a little bit of that it feels like the best version of this play existed somewhere in between <laughs> in between the yeah. version and the 2012 one where you gave people enough camp and enough blood uh but yeah. they still took the story seriously and yeah, um, yeah. that to me is really interesting so but like you know you mentioned that some people Describe, and I remember hearing this adjacently when I was younger in the theater was just the general idea that Carrie the musical was really bad, that it was like a horrible, bad musical. And, mm. you know, and I feel like, uh, I feel like that happens a lot with art sometimes where you get something that is perhaps perfectly serviceable or has mm. a lot of good stuff to it, but because it, it emerged in this perfect storm of bad reviews behind mm. the scenes drama, uh, urban legends, uh, you know, quick closing and then back then yeah. um, it closed and then it's not like people had video that was readily available to watch yeah, yeah. The, the cultural reassessment couldn't happen right away it needed time yeah. to sort of worm its way through the populace whereas now I think I feel like things get uh reassessed a yeah, lot yeah so I guess yeah. like is does it has it earned that uh that um distinction of being bad or one of the worst musicals of all time is that more of a matter of perception or was it actually pretty bad i think that there are different answers to this depending on who you ask i think you right. know the 
as you say, it was a perfect storm. And I think this is what I was interested in, in having the space in the book to dive a bit more into the kind of cultural reasons. Firstly, why this show became a show, why, you know, what led to its creation in the first place, and then what led to it closing, and then what led to it being reevaluated. Um, I, I personally don't think it was a bad show. I think it was largely a misunderstood show. It did have bad elements. I don't think there's any way to argue against it. Some of it just didn't work. Some of it was right. overblown. Some of it was some of what was on stage was not right for this material. Um, and that's in all departments from, you know, from music to dance to costume to everything. There were just some things that just didn't work, um, as the critics were very happy to point out. Some right. people... Um, it depends what you were going for. I think with the kind of retrospective of 35 years, if the show opened now in the form that it opened in 88, I think it would be received very differently. Right. And as I say, there are people who you know have spent a lot of time reassessing the show down to its very minutiae and it's very kind of uh, moment by moment and, and, and explaining what was happening and why it was happening, which I think is really fascinating. And um you carry obviously influence a lot of other people and you know you see now in the kind of youthful shows that appear on broadway elements of this you, you go and see something like heather's the musical you right. see strands of carrie in there it's undeniable um so i think probably the best way to describe it is that it's not a bad i don't think it's a bad show i think it was a memorable show uh and there were plenty of other shows which opened and closed in you know quick succession all through time on on broadway and nobody talks about them nobody yeah. remembers them uh you know there are shows that closed and uh, opened and closed in one night and they're barely ever mentioned ever again apart from in obscure books like this um but oh, i know i was cracking up at some <laughs> of the musicals that you mentioned like there was the one with Trump <laughs> that was set in outer space oh like, yeah how have yeah, i yeah, never heard about this yeah yeah exactly that's what i mean you know but people talk about people did talk about the show a lot as soon as it closed people were talking about it and that talk grew and grew and grew and grew and i think something can't be a flop if that many people are fascinated by it you know um and i want, and I want to add here like i think what's interesting and we talk about this a lot on the podcast is the evolution of sort of stephen king's reputation and culture and yeah. I think in the 80s, I mean, don't get me wrong, like he always had his people, but it took yeah. a long time for sort of the literary cognizante, like the the critics, yes. right? Like the high-minded yeah. people to embrace him. I mean, he was yeah. he was derided by some of the the best critics of the 70s and 80s because they thought what he made was not literature, uh, in the sense that, you know, in that it was it was diluting it that the that this um emergence of genre onto the or at least the popularity, the massive popularity of this was a disservice to literary fiction and so i do mm. wonder if some of the fascination and maybe the the schadenfreude around the the failure of this musical had yeah. to do with to some degree with sort of the high-minded folks who yes. did go to broadway at that time being like stephen king this is not a place for you like this is for oh, yeah. Ed weber and this is for our people Definitely. like this is not for you and i do because i do think that there was a lot of snobbery that yes uh, yeah. that circulated around king and obviously that's changed uh he's a lot i think he's respected by uh, like all the all the same people who are in those positions in the 80s the cultural critics like yeah. everyone who grew up on him are now in those positions and there's so much more respect for him but you know yeah, even yeah. when we interviewed him i think he does carry a lot of bitterness and resentment from that era where he wasn't right. taken seriously right. and um, and in the 80s specifically was when he tried to branch out and you know stuff like different seasons uh 
where he was very, and he would write these forewords and stuff and talk about the idea of, um, I am not a horror writer. I am not just a horror writer. I'm not just a horror yeah, writer, yeah. you know, but it was yeah, very true. hard for, I think, a lot of the high-minded critics to accept that. Yeah. So anyways, I, I see this after reading um, your book, like I see a lot more of uh, how that I think tied into oh, yeah. the perfect Absolutely. storm around Carrie. Yeah. yeah, I mean, particularly here in the UK, there was just, when you read the the press articles once the, when this project was announced by the RSC, the the news the news critics were kind of there was this there was almost a rage about it. People right. were furious. Um, you know, people were talking about it as this airport paperback schlocker. Why was the RSC getting involved in this deep nasty material? Um, and like you say, you know, I think now if you, you know, I, there's the, you know, there are operas based on The Shining and people right. think it's great high art. Um, you know, people wouldn't think twice about going to see something like that now. And I think, you know, the snobbery, particularly that was kind of around the show in the UK, was very hard to outrun once the show went to Broadway. And I do wonder if the show had opened in the States first, being a very American story at a time when the UK was probably much more detached from American culture. Um, whether it would have done a lot better, you know, from the off. It's interesting. Right. Um, but even then, you know, there was still, as you say, a lot of snobbishness around it from the from the Broadway critics too. There was a sense that this shouldn't be taking up a theater. This is, you know, horror nonsense. This is, a, you know- Which is a, wild a, when you consider the popularity <laughs> of Cats, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, exactly, yeah. We were, I was talking about this to someone earlier, you know, if you try and explain the plot of Cats or most Broadway musicals to anyone, they're just as crazy as the plot of Carrie. But there's something about Carrie that that was just unseemly to people. It just wasn't kind of um, something that should be done on a serious stage, particularly by the the Royal Shakespeare Company. Should yeah, not and I imagine a lot of that has to do with, and you mentioned this in your book, just the idea that so much of the plot circles around blood and menstruation, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, totally. yeah. That to me is really interesting because I do feel like there is this that it's uncouth you know what i mean to bring yes. that sort of thing to the broadway stage but i mean yeah. that's the kind of that's the kind of um you know subversiveness that i really i think is so exciting and like embrace you know and yeah. Uh, but yeah so you've said you've seen a handful of productions now what is your favorite staging that you've seen of carry the musical there are so many different ways to do it um i i have i didn't see it live but i have seen a recording of it there was a great um immersive production of carrie which you were saying earlier the kind of ideal production is somewhere in the middle between yeah. the kind of 80s and the, the very realistic 2012 version there was a production i think it was 2016 in uh la in california um where they kind of they they rebadged it the um i think they called it the killer musical experience or something like that and they kind of brought the world of the show to life a bit so the audience was sitting on these bleachers that would kind of move around this enormous old movie theater i think they used um and there were different rooms you could kind of go and explore you know you could go to the locker room and there was blood all over the lockers and then you could go to you know different parts of carrie's world basically and then the very kind of grand finale they sort of brought you to the prom and you know there were these amazing special effects where chris was flown across the audience you know flying up into yeah. the rafters and it was this very kind of visceral in-your-face version um and but it was using the 2012 edition of the musical it was using the new songs it was using the new dialogue but it was kind of it was it was very kind of this grand production i suppose it was not subtle in any way um and i think you know it, it, that production was hugely well reviewed it was revived later you know it was done a couple of times 
Um, and I wish I'd seen it live because it sounds incredible, but it sort of brought the show to life for people, I think, in this way that that we've we've spoken about, you know, Stephen King almost needs this slightly over the topness right. to make sense. It needs these kind of slightly overblown characters, slightly uh, out of this world situations. No, it doesn't always quite work in a hundred percent realistic setting. It does need something in it that kind of uh, transports it to a different world in a way. So I think I wish everyone would see that one, but I, I loved watching that on tape. Is um, that something that people could find on YouTube? I think there are clips of it. Yeah, I okay. mean there are there are kind of quite strict rules about what you can and can't sure. uh, uh, film with with productions, but um, there are lots of clips and lots of different productions all over YouTube. This is the thing these days, you know, people in the '90s were desperate for anything they could get from the 1988 production. Now, if you go and search for you know a musical, a Broadway musical on YouTube, you can probably watch a whole musical there yeah. without in like ten seconds. So it, th this is the different world we live in, and I think. There was something about that chase in the nineties oh, yeah. that, that I hear made you. the show. <laughs> you know what I mean? It kind of that added to the legacy of the show, the legend of the show, in that there was this kind of it was always just slightly out of reach. And every kind of clip or every videotape you got kind of brought you a bit closer to something. And I think that's a really interesting thing. Um yeah, it was a very thing. <laughs> I think that's like what people of our age sort of when we look at modern fandom it's such a different beast in a lot of ways and yeah, you know yeah. certainly no shade to it but it's like you used to have to really work for oh, yeah. to find underground art you know what i mean when when we were younger or art that had you know a very small uh footprint you had yeah, to sort of yeah. like you know put your put your binoculars on and go search for it and i don't yeah. know there's something so satisfying about about that sort of um cultivation yeah. like like i mean even for king like uh books like um what is it called the one the, he has like a book of it's like stone gargoyles it's photos of gargoyles and it's something in the sky but it was like a really relatively rare book where right. came a bunch of text for all these like photos of gargoyles we have an episode oh, okay. about it I wasn't on it but it's like um I remember that book I I didn't have access to Amazon or anything like that yeah. so I was like searching every bookstore I went to <laughs> find it and I eventually found it after years and I was like you know Amazing. it was so satisfying for me and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I feel like that's something that's lost these days but but <laughs> um but so I don't know like have you engaged or seen any of the other King adaptations on stage there was like a Misery production uh there's the Shining Opera that you mentioned and um I believe that there's I'm trying to think there's one other uh uh book that has been adapted to the stage recently i can't remember right now but like have you seen any of those others ones you know what i don't think i actually have i think i've never been quite in the right place at the right time um yeah. there is this talk of the shine of uh, a straight play of the shining that has been bubbling away for a few years which i think was kind of about to open pre-covid and, and i think is now kind of about to be about to come back um and i'm really excited about that it's it's been attached to a director called eva van hove who's this sort of amazing oh yeah uh, uh, director so that will be really cool to see I've never seen the misery play I think was on Broadway a bit before I was old enough to get across to New York um, and has popped up a couple of times I think that was a Dolores Claiborne opera, yes that's what I was thinking of point, I think yeah, yeah which again no I haven't seen I mean horror on stage is is this weird thing it's quite a rare thing you know it's yeah um it's it's a very you have to do it very right to make it work and perhaps this is another part of the kind of the pot of reasons why why Carrie didn't quite work because you know when you're reading a book or when you're watching a film 
you can be told almost, uh, you know, what someone's feeling or thinking, or you can zoom in and the director can tell you what to look at and you can build that tension very effectively. That's very hard to do on stage. Yeah. You know, there are so many distractions. You can look anywhere you want in a theater. Um, but then again, you know, Shakespeare was doing it back in his day. He had very bloody plays as well. So, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And that maybe explains why, you know, there are so many Stephen King movies and not so many Stephen King stage adaptations. Maybe someone should try and do something else. Yeah, just... I mean, like, I, you know, from being like, you know, you mentioned you've sort of been steeped in, in Carrie the Musical yeah. for, for all these years. And I feel similarly about Stephen King, where, you know, we've been doing this podcast since 2017, and I feel like I'm always, you know, hip deep in some kind of uh, King yeah. thing, but I still have never seen a stage production uh, of anything that's been adapted because mm. uh, there was a production of Carrie the Musical here in Chicago some years ago, pre-COVID, um, yeah. that, that unfortunately I didn't make it to. And then like, I feel like all these other stage adaptations just never come through this city or I don't make it to New York or LA when they are playing. And so it kills me because I'm dying to see a really good one. If there is yeah. one that you would want to see adapted, uh, what comes to oh, mind? Wow. Yeah, oh whether as a musical or, as, or like a, just a normal play. There's a great Broadway composer called Joe Iconis, who we we interviewed on the podcast and in the book, actually, because he's a big Carrie fan as well. And his work is all very, it's very dark. It's It's got horror elements to it. And he's always wanted to do it as a musical. Oh, and I yeah, think he would be, awesome. be the perfect writer for it. So if anyone out there has got a lot of money and access to the <laughs> game, get in touch with Joe and let him have the rights to do it as a musical. Because I think that would be fantastic. I think that would be cool as hell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think other than that, so much of, of his stories are, I can't imagine how you'd do them. I like, know, how right? would you get, you know, how would you get Cujo on that stage every night? Maybe you could do some, like, cool Lion King puppet stuff. But, yeah, um... <laughs> I, think, I, I think that there is, like, space to innovate. But I also, at the same time, I'm... I, there is a part of me, there is a little itch in me that says, like, most King just wouldn't make that journey. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. wouldn't make that journey to stage. I don't think it's necessarily made for that. I, I Do you know much about the the uh, Darkland County, that musical that he was working on with John Miller? No, I don't actually, no. Yeah, we're going to do an episode on that relatively oh, cool. soon because we're we're basically nearing because we're a chronological podcast so we're sort of nearing like uh, yeah, of when he started working on that but i yeah. i have a friend who was i have a couple of friends who have like one who saw a, like a workshop production another who was present during development i want to talk to them and get some details because you know obviously that project i think is you know probably never going to happen on a wide scale now but it definitely happened uh, on a smaller scale and i'd love to learn more about it because i'm like oh, cool. like all that level of talent like how did it not come together yeah, yeah and that's yeah. just the thing about theater is is it's never that easy like like you mentioned earlier you can't just like the whole grease grease thing there are so many uh wheels that are turning all the time and there are so many different things that have to come together it's not like yeah. you know something like that just happens like there are so many moving pieces and also you talk about some of the funding issues that happen with uh the carry musical as well and that's always yeah. another component especially these days yeah, yeah where, you know uh, post COVID specifically, it's like, you know, I think the, the ecosystem around theater was very badly yeah. bruised during that. And so, oh, yeah. you know, what, yeah. what the future of theater looks like is, uh, you know, very dicey. So I don't know. I mean, mm. obviously I think IP is the thing right now, but, uh, but I'm not sure if King is the, the IP that they're <laughs> the looking for. Yeah. Well, who um, knows? I mean, people are taking more and more risks, aren't they, as you say, but, uh, yeah, I think there's, we're in a strange phase of theater where, uh, I think producers are quite risk averse still because they need to get people back into their theaters and paying lots of money. So 
maybe as this eases off slightly, we'll get to some interesting Stephen King stuff uh, yeah. in the near future. Speaking of interesting Stephen King stuff, your book, Out for Blood, is fantastic. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Fan. And so, yeah, uh, listeners, you can get it. It's available July. I have it up here. July 27th yeah. via Bloomsbury Publishing. Um, and yeah, if if people want to follow you online, keep up, keep tabs on what you're doing. Um, like, do you have a, a social media? Where can they find you? Yeah, follow the podcast. Um, we're on Twitter, if that still exists by the time this goes out. But, uh, <laughs> Twitter, we're out for blood pod. And Instagram, we're out for blood podcast, just to keep things different. Awesome. Um, and then so, your yeah, podcast is available on all podcast platforms. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're, we've pretty much released everything there is to say now about Carrie the Musical. So you can binge the whole thing from the start. <laughs> awesome. Well, Chris, this was a blast. Thank you so much for your Thank you. For your knowledge about this. This was really, really fun. Um, and yeah, I hope to cross paths again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Bye-bye. Bye. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs> <laughs>